Somebody has said the last words of a dying person are so important because they're not thinking about peripheral things. They have their priorities absolutely in place. They're giving you important information. That's why I want you to be here for the last words of Jesus Christ to the church. But Paul and Peter both had words that we need to recognize. Let's go to Peter first. Go to third chapter of the book of 2 Peter with me, 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to notice something that Peter had to say as he was concluding his ministry of a number of years and how he is exhorting the church to do what needs to be done. Now notice in chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The word remember or remembrance is used a number of times in 2 Peter. In fact, 2 Peter is a book that was especially written for the end times helping us to understand how we should live in the end times and what we should be doing in light of the end times. And he said, I'm going to stir up your pure mind by bringing things to your memory. Verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken of before by the holy prophets. The holy prophets. Again, I want to continue to remind you that both Peter and Paul new Bible prophecy. There are 17 Old Testament prophetic books. The book of Revelation had not been written yet in the times of Peter and Paul, but indeed a relationship with those who were going to write the book. And in fact, the message that I started with on Wednesday night, the Olivet Discourse, is absolutely a precursor. If you study intently the Olivet Discourse, you'll see it is giving us really the scenario that is laid out in the book of Revelation. Everything that Jesus gave and that message just before his crucifixion a couple of days, it was taken by John the Revelator who was in that audience there on the Mount of Olives and then he would be delegated with the responsibility getting the information from God who then gave it to Jesus. Jesus then delegated an angel, this is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, who then dictated it to John the Revelator and wrote it down so you and I could have it. But in essence it was given in Matthew chapter 24, though Paul wasn't there, he spent time with the apostles and the disciples after he came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And we'll see what he thought about the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. But here Peter says, I want you to remember what the prophets had to say. Not only prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles. God used Jesus on the earth to appoint 12 men to be his representatives, the apostles, gifted men who would go forth to establish the church that would bring men alongside of them to do what the Lord wanted to do to establish a local church and to cause the spread of the gospel. But in addition to that, not only the apostles, but of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus spent three and a half years in close contact with this group of apostles, except Apostle Paul, who he would then uh, minister to himself for a number of years after he came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Three years over there in 
Arabia, or Saudi Arabia as we know it. And uh, so uh, Paul was just as versed in the prophetic truth and what God's doctrine would be. In fact, the Holy Spirit gave the Apostle Paul most of the doctrine that we are able to learn from the epistles that he wrote, the books in uh, the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote. And so they were at the feet of Jesus Christ. I love the 21st chapter of the book of uh, John, which says, had we recorded everything that Jesus Christ had said, there wouldn't be enough room in this world to contain all the books to record what he had to say. So outstanding information. The prophets, the apostles, and Jesus Christ, that's gonna, if you'll study these, you'll understand then exactly what God wants us to have, and it will make us remember what they taught and produce a, a pure mind for us. Now notice verse three, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, who will deny the second coming of Christ. We see that more and more across the countryside. I was asked by Brandon House on the national interview that he did with me today, and we were talking about those who claim to be prophets, in fact, those who claim to be apostles. Over in the state of Florida, there's a guy named Rick Joyner. He has established an organization called the NAR, not the NRA, National Rifle Association, but the NAR, Neo, uh, I mean, the Neo-Apostolic Reformation, and uh, they're claiming to be apostles. They raise the dead, they multiply food, they're naming other apostles. You know the problem I have with it, I know a little bit about Revelation, and I realize that that New Jerusalem in chapter 21 has 12 pillars, 12 foundation stones, and they have the names of the apostles on them, and the, the apostles, uh, if they're making more apostles, they're gonna have to have more foundation stones, maybe 2,000 of those pillars for the New Jerusalem is the way they're uh, producing apostles today. That's not true. 12 apostles set aside by the Lord to do something special. But what's gonna happen is that in the last days, not only will there be apostles, but there'll be false apostles, there'll be false prophets, there'll be false teachers, and it'll cause to people to deny the second coming of Christ but basically, not only because of the false teaching, but because they walk after their own lust. Now this is a fantastic crowd for Friday evening. I'm thrilled that you're here. I do see a couple of empty seats. We could have probably filled them up if you'd have done what Pastor said. Let me ask you a question. How many before 12 noon today called three people and invited them to come? Oh, don't raise your hands. Uh, because you'd either be bragging or embarrassed one or the other. I don't want you to do that. But uh, that was a great idea. I like. I don't know, why did you say by 12 noon, Pastor? Make sure they did it? Oh, and could go get them. Well, that's a great idea. I like that. I'm going to steal that and use it and claim it's mine. Anyway, uh, that's what it's talking about. And Peter explains that this is going to happen. He's looking at the end times. He recognizes Bible prophecy. He understands what's going to happen. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see not only will they deny the coming of Jesus Christ, but they're going to deny creation, they're going to deny the flood, they're going to deny judgment. I can understand denying judgment because they don't want to face the judge, they don't want to face the great white throne judgment if they're lost, and if they're saved, they really don't want to go to the judgment seat of Christ because they're going to be embarrassed there. Those saved by fire, they're going to 
lose a lot of rewards that God wants to give to them. This is Peter talking. This is his swan song. Notice what he says about Jesus Christ in verse nine. This is key. And I'm talking about Bible prophecy. Every message I give has a climax which is telling you that the rapture could happen at any moment. I believe that with all of my heart. In fact, I cannot understand with the exception of this verse why Jesus Christ has not come back. I thought 2015 would have been a great year for him to come back. I'm absolutely convinced 2016 is gonna be the better year for him to come back at the rapture of the church. It may not happen, and let me tell you why. Look at verse nine. The Lord himself says, I am not slack concerning my promise. His promise of the return, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, which he introduced in Matthew 24, 29, and then the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You want to do the Lord's will? If you want to do the Lord's will, you must be in missions, home missions, foreign missions, winning people to Jesus Christ. You need to do that. I can remember the very first time I ever tried to witness to somebody. Now, I was nervous, like I'm sure you probably have been in the past or maybe even are still today. I was in a place called Thomasville, Georgia. And Judy and I had moved up there. I was the vice president of a broadcasting company in this little Georgia town. I had never witnessed to anybody. Somebody had suggested, I thought God was calling me to preach. They said, look, you ought to start preaching in the jails. I thought that was a great idea. Not because I was there from the night before, but because I would go in on Sunday morning. And so I walked into the jailhouse and I was going to give my first little sermon and I was going to witness to these guys. And as I walked up to the bars in this jailhouse, a couple of men standing behind the bars and one of them was smoking a cigarette and blowing smoke on me. Now, if you want to smoke, that's your, I guess, problem, but don't blow smoke on me. I just don't like it. And this guy was irritating me to death. So I said, I see you smoke. I chew. If you don't blow smoke on me, I won't spit on you. And so he put his cigarette right out. He didn't want me to spit tobacco on it. I didn't have tobacco. I wasn't going to spit it, but he, he put it out. But these guys were singing and taking crazy things and making crazy statements. And I didn't have their attention. And every time I'd say something about Jesus, the guy was standing right behind the bar would say, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And it was irritating me. I took a young man in with me to start to train him. Now, I, first time I'm witnessing, but I'm going to train him, you know, training up the younger brethren to do it. And for some reason, he took the knife out of his pocket and he was cleaning his fingernails. Now, I'm really getting a bit upset. Now here I am trying to witness this guy in front of me. He's making fun, singing, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And here's the guy behind me with a knife and he's cleaning his fingernails. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention to me. I said, I got to get attention. So I reached to the bars and I grabbed this guy making fun, blowing him smoke in my face. I grabbed him by the shirt and pulled him up to the bars. At the same time, I made a move back and I grabbed the knife from the guy behind me and I took the knife and I put it to the neck of this guy making fun of the gospel. And I said, buddy, what would happen if I slit your throat right now? He said, I'd die. 
I said, oh, yes. Yeah. You want me to tell you how you don't have to worry about dying? He said, yes, sir, I do. You see, I had to get his attention. And I got his attention and was able to get the gospel. And he did come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I don't tell you that to brag about my first experience, but I simply tell it to you so that you will go forth and do it. I love to get involved in witnessing. I lived in Tallahassee, Florida, and the radio station was up in Thomasville, Georgia. It was about a 30-mile drive I had to do every day. And I would love to pick up hitchhikers. And I'm not afraid of picking up a hitchhiker. I have a method. Now, in the States, I drive on the left side of the car, not like people that live other places. And so I'm driving down the road, and what I do is I open my Bible, and I put it in the seat right beside me just like this. And so I pull up, and uh, I, I stop, and I say, hey, you need a ride? He said, yeah. I said, come on and get in. He comes running over to the car. He opens the door. He says, oh, I a Bible. I said, oh yeah, it's a Bible, come on, get in. He said, what am I gonna do? I said, well, I'll move it over a little bit, and I moved it a little bit. You wanna know something? If he's a hitchhiker, and you just give him enough room to sit against the door, he can't reach you with a knife if he's gonna try to do anything to you. The Bible's between you and him. And so I got in the, in the road, and I started down the road, and I looked at him, and I said, hey man, where are you gonna go when you die? He said, you mean right now? <laughs> The speed I was going, he thought he might be coming to that end very closely. I said, no, when you actually die. And he said, well, I don't know. I said, can I tell you how you can know what you're going to have happen to you? when you?" And I opened up the gospel and I gave him. The, you see, what I'm saying is when you first did it, you get involved in doing it. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm not willing that any should perish. You want to do the will of God? Verse 12 of chapter 3, look at it later. It says we can hasten the coming of the rapture of the church by winning people to Jesus Christ. That's what missions is all about. You don't have to go to the foreign field to be involved in missions. In fact, you don't even have to have a call to be involved in missions. There was a lady, uh, you know, sir, uh, Eddie, what was the lady's name that uh, Marge Wurzen led to the Lord down in Columbia, South America? Do you remember her name? I can't remember her name. She was a little lady. She was about, I would imagine, four foot nine. She weighed about 90 pounds. She had gone out to the mission field. Marge Wurzen, Jack Wurzen's wife, led her to the Lord in Brooklyn or Manhattan. She went down there and she established, listen to this, she led over 3,000 men to the Lord, and they were trained up by her, and they started churches. She didn't believe a woman should pastor a church, and so she trained these men. She led them to the Lord. We were over at Calvary Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale in a missions conference. I was the keynote speaker like I am tonight. She got up to give a word of testimony. And after she gave the testimony, during the testimony, you know what she said? This sweet little thing who was... At that time, 79 years old, the next morning, getting on the airplane to fly back to Columbia. And she looked at the young people. It was a young people's meeting. She said, I want you young people to know something. I never had a call to go to the mission field. I had a command to go to the mission field. And that's exactly right. We are all commanded to do it. We need to be involved. Peter is saying that. He says about Jesus. The only reason he hasn't come back, he's not willing that any should perish. Get in the action, be involved. And it was because of prophecy. 
He understood prophecy. He gave information about prophecy. I'll go over here to the book of 2 Timothy. This is the swan song, the last statement of the apostle Paul. He, he starts in chapter three, great information about what's gonna be at the end of time. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come, chapter three and verse one, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And that's one of the reasons we're not going to the mission field today because we love ourselves so much, we don't wanna to go to the mission field. We're not willing to go. Eddie and Eunice were out there. She was sick. She got some medicine. She went back out. Eddie almost dies out there, and he gets ready to go back. You see, and I love what Eunice said. It's not where you are. The location doesn't matter. God, the protector's in all places. He's omnipresent. He can take care of you. But we become lovers of ourselves. That's what's happening in our world. The covetous, the boasters, they're proud blasphemers. They're disobedient to parents. How about that? Children disobedient to parents. Boy, I sometimes get really upset when children act up in church and don't pay attention and start causing others to not pay attention. But I'm not really blaming the children. I blame the parents because they're not teaching their children properly, but then the children are not taught to be obedient to parents. That's what's happening. Unholy, without natural affliction. Uh, that's sodomy. That's homosexuality, and it's spreading across the world. Uh, I could go on through here. Look at verse four. Pleasures, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But how about that? That's what keeps us off the mission, Phil. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And what does Paul say? Turn away from that. And then we get to chapter four, and this is his swan song, the last statements he's gonna make. He said, preach the word in season and out of season. Be ready. If you don't have a, a, an opportunity, make an opportunity. Just simply preach the word. He said in the last days, there are going to be those who want their ears tickled. They're not going to pay attention to the truth. But you preach the word. And that's what missionaries need to do. Preach the word when they go out there. But notice what happens here when we get down to uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. Here's what Paul says. I fought a fight. I fought it. A good fight. And I finished my course. I had to run the course. 30 years of ministry. I love how Paul started out. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, I'm the least of the saints. Halfway through his ministry, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. At the end of his ministry, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. You see the progression? You might call it a digression. It's a progression of how Paul was getting closer to the Lord and falling more in love with him. I fought the fight, kept the faith, finished the course. Look here in verse eight. Here's a very important statement. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's one of five crowns that the Lord will give us if we abide by the dictates for those crowns. And this is the last one, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, the day of the judgment seat of Christ, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That's where Paul was. He loved the appearing of Jesus Christ. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that's the prophecy Paul gave about the rapture of the church and the procedure that would take place. Have you ever noticed how he uses himself as those who would be going in the rapture in his day? And he says, and we 
and we shall be caught up to meet him in the air. These men understood Bible prophecy, and because of it, they were dedicated, ready to give their lives, ready to, well, how many times was Paul shipwrecked? How many times did they think he was dead? How many times was he beaten? How many times was he in jail? You know, was he was in jail, Philippians chapter four in Rome? And he was chained to a Roman soldier every day, but he kept on preaching and people in Caesar's household came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Man, it didn't matter to him. He just went at it. And it was because I believe that he understood Bible prophecy. He was a student. He taught, he predicted, he wrote Bible prophecy. We mentioned last night that he read about Esau and Jacob, which was the basis upon which I taught Esau and the Palestinians last night. He understood that. He understood that God has a plan for the Jewish people, past, present, and future, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. That's key. Go back just for a second to old 2 Peter and go to chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you about what Peter had to say. You know, Peter was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who went on the Mount of Transfiguration up at Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi. And he was an eyewitness to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says here in verse 18. And the voice, his voice, which came from heaven, God's voice, Ye, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now notice, he was there, eyewitness to the transfiguration. There was Elijah, there was Moses, there was Jesus Christ and resurrected glorified bodies. Jesus had said, you're going to see me in my kingdom before you die. And he said it to those three uh, inner circle guys in the disciples' core there. But notice what he said. I saw that with my own eyes. Now look at verse 19. But we have also a more sure word of prophecy. A more sure word than an eyewitness account. We think we have to see it, and if we see it, it's absolute. The Lord's word is a more sure word of Bible prophecy than even the eyewitness of Peter at the transfiguration. We've got his holy word, one third of the entire Bible, one out of every three pages, 30% of the Bible is Bible prophecy, a more sure word of Bible prophecy. So that being the case, I want to take a few moments now, and I want you to look at probably the most significant prophecy that we could look at in light of what is going on in the Middle East. Now, I want to give a little bit of background, so let's go to chapter 16 of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 16. Do you know what's happening in Genesis in those first 2,000 years? In chapter 1 of Genesis, it's the record of creation. Chapter 2, the special effects of creation. Chapter 3 is the fall of man. Chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 is a genealogy. That's from Noah to Jonah. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Chapter 10, another genealogy. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham comes up from Ur of the Chaldees, which is about 90 miles south east of what we know as Baghdad, Iraq. He comes up the Euphrates River, comes to the Fertile Crescent, which is modern-day Syria, comes down into the land that God had promised to give the Jewish people. In chapter 13, he's going to share a piece of that real estate with his nephew Lot. And in fact, Lot chose the location down in the Jordan Valley 
near Sodom and Gomorrah, but at that time it was before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and Lot chose it because it looked like the Garden of God. Well, if you remember last time I was here, I taught that the Garden of Eden is Jerusalem, so it would have stretched out to the Jordan Valley. Uh, Chapter 14 is the first mention of Jerusalem. It's called Salem there, but 76th chapter, verse 2 of the book of Psalms talks about Salem is Jerusalem. And you remember who was in Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem and the, the priest of Jerusalem? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now I'm going to have to learn from the pastor. He's going to take me out to dinner and I'll find out who Melchizedek is. I happen to believe he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ because he had no beginning. He didn't have an ending. But remember, he was a priest and Jesus Christ will be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's the 14th chapter. The 15th chapter of the book of Genesis is the Abrahamic covenant. God promising to give the Jewish people a piece of real estate because he's going to make them a nation forever. Have you ever noticed the description there in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis? It starts at the river in Egypt and it extends north to the Euphrates River and then goes down the Euphrates River and makes a southeastern turn into the Persian Gulf. That's one of 38 passages about the real estate that God has given the Jewish people forever. They only have 10% of what they're going to get, but let me tell you something. You know what? All of the land, it starts there in Egypt. I would say the Nile River. Many want to say it's the Egyptian Wadi, but I say it's the Nile River, and it comes through half of Egypt, all of the Sinai, all of Israel, going up the Mediterranean coast, all of Lebanon, to the Euphrates River, which comes across Lebanon, the top of it. It then takes in all of Syria, all of Jordan, three quarters of Iraq, all of Kuwait, and three quarters of Saudi Arabia. Do you understand what I just told you? That's 10 times what they have today. That's what God's going to give them. Half of Egypt, all of Israel, all of Lebanon, all of Syria, all of Jordan, three quarters of Iraq, all of Kuwait, three quarters of Saudi Arabia. The former president of Syria, father of Bashar Assad, the present president, his name was Hafez al-Assad, and he said the problem in the Middle East is that these Jews believe the Bible. Hello? Hey, right on, Hafez al-Assad. And they're going to get that land. Now, do you understand the problem? The Arab world, the Muslim world doesn't want Israel, the Jewish people, to have that land. God has promised to give it to them. That's the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. Let's go to chapter 16. Let me show you what's going to happen here in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaiden, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Did you hear what I just said, folks? So many people tell me, hey, DeYoung, you don't know what you're talking about. Ishmael established the Arab world. He was the father of the Arab world. Oh, yeah? Is there a medical doctor in the house? Raise your hand. Medical doctor? Well, I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD, but I do know something about medicine. Do you understand what I just read there? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaiden, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. She's going to be the mother of Ishmael. I don't know how this happens, but how can a son give birth to his mother? I don't think that's possible. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just a PhD, but I think that's right. I mean, you can ask a medical doctor sometime. 
The son cannot birth his mother. And she was an Egyptian. And Egypt is the largest Arab country in the world with 88 million people. And so Ishmael, the first proof, I'll prove it more, first proof, he didn't establish the Arab world. But he does play a key role in what's going to happen in the end times. The Lord's going to appear to him because you see actually what Sarai did was offer her handmaiden Hagar to her husband Abram so he could continue on the heritage of the Jewish people. He went in, he fell under temptation, he went in, had a sexual relationship with her, impregnated her. Look at verse seven, in the angel of the Lord. That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Uh, that's when Jesus Christ, before his birth in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, that's when Jesus Christ is going to appear. And he does this so many different times in the Old Testament. In our church that we established in Jerusalem, Pastor was telling you about. We hardly use the New Testament. We use the Old Testament to present Jesus Christ because he's almost on every other page. It's amazing where he is presented. Well, this is one of those pre presentations. Look at verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, her behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thine affliction. Now notice verse 12. This is a character reference from Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. This is what he thinks, Jesus thinks about Ishmael. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. He's going to be a wild man. His hand against every man, every man's hand against him. He's going to have 12 sons and they're going to be just like their daddy. An apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. That's exactly how it's going to be. But I want you to know Ishmael did not father the Arab world. He fathered one nation. How do I know? Jesus Christ in that pre-incarnate appearance is still there. He's visiting with Abraham. He's going to talk about Abraham and Isaac. He's going to tell them what he's going to do. Look at chapter 17 and verse 20. Chapter 17 and verse 20. And as for Ishmael, this is the Lord explaining to Abraham what's going to happen. And as this for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes or twelve sons shall he begot and I will make him a great nation. Singular. Uno. One nation. Only one nation is Ishmael going to father. Go to chapter 25 of the book of Genesis. In chapter 25 we see uh, the record of the three families of Abraham, we looked at Isaac and Rebekah, but let's look at Ishmael just for a moment. He's the son born unto uh, Father Abraham and Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. Verse 12, chapter 25. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaiden, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. And he lists the names of those 12 sons. These 12 sons actually become chiefs of tribes living in tents. 
Now, you know why I know that's the case? Because of where they went to live. Look here in verse 18. Here's where they went to live. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt as thou goest toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all of his brethren. That's a geographical description of what we know as Arabia. Arabia. You know where the word Arabia comes from? Arab. The Arabic word. You know what Arab means? It's been perverted by the media. Arab means Bedouin or nomad. Now we have a group of nations out there called Arab nations. There are 23 of them. What qualifies them as an Arab nation? They speak the Arabic language, number one. And number two, their national religion is Islam. There are other nations that are Islamic, but they don't speak Arabic, so they're not Arab nations. You have 23 Arab nations, and then you have additional nations that are Islamic, like Turkey, like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Indonesia. Do you know there are 300 million Muslims living in India? That alone would be the largest population of any Arab or Islamic nation in the world. But get that, uh, the qualification down, Arab or Islam. So when you hear those phrases talking about the news reporter giving reports, you know who they're talking about. And that word Arab means Bedouin or nomad. That means a wanderer in the desert. They would go out there, they would take their sheep and goats and continue to move to different pastures in the desert. There are green pastures in the desert. The grass grows there. So they would move to greener pastures. They would have a Bedouin tent. The Bedouin tent was woven out of goat hair. I don't know if you can see the spaces between my fingers, but the goat hair, as they wove this tent, would have the space in there, and the characteristics of the goat hair woven into a tent, if it started to rain, those goat hairs would come together and cover it up so the rain wouldn't come in the tent. These tents were unbelievable. The culture that Ishmael introduced through his 12 sons was amazing. You know the 12 sons, some of them were strong sons, and uh, I'm talking about powerful men who led these tribes. Some of them weren't as powerful. A Bedouin tent, a tent used by Arabs in Arabia, would be always facing the east. And the way you would approach a Bedouin tent, if you're out there, just make sure you understand this. If you go on your own or if you come and go to Israel with us, we'll take you to a Bedouin tent and I'll show you what you're supposed to do before you get there. May I just suggest this to you? If you're in a, a country where they have Bedouins and you visit a Bedouin tent, it's facing the east, but don't you dare walk up behind the tent and walk up in the front and say, hey, how you guys doing? They'll kill you on the spot. You don't sneak up on them like that. What you do if you're walking up to a Bedouin tent, you get back here and you go, ah, oh, ah, uh, ah, make as much noise as you can. And they'll come out and say, hey, how you doing? Come on in. They're renowned for their hospitality. When you get inside the Bedouin tent, they're going to give you a cup of the hottest, blackest, strongest coffee you've ever tasted in your life. That coffee can actually walk from the fireplace over to you. You can pick it up and you can look at it. And when you look in that cup at that coffee, make sure you understand what it means. If you have a full cup of coffee, may I suggest you start asking forgiveness for all your sins? Because that means you're going to be dead in about 60 seconds. 
But if you look down in that cup of strong black hot coffee and it's half full, you can sing the hallelujah chorus because that means you're gonna be a guest as long as you wanna stay. You drink that half a cup of black coffee, they'll give you the hottest, sweetest tea that you've ever tasted in your life and you can stay for six months, six years, they don't care, they just love to have you around. Now that's the hospitality, but it's also the culture established by Ishmael when he went to Arabia to live there. Remember those sons I was telling you about? I said some of them were stronger than their weaker brothers. So you know what they would do? They would try to take over the tribe of the weaker brother and incorporate it into their tribe. And if they were able to do that, you know what they would call that brother? An Islamic warrior. Do you hear me? Well, that wasn't after Islam had been established. That was long before Islam, long before Muhammad. Because Arabic Islam doesn't mean peace. Salam means peace. Islam means submission. And those stronger tribal leaders, sons of Ishmael, would go to the weaker brother and bring them under submission. Do you know what Muhammad said? We're jumping down through the years. We're seeing the culture that's developing in Arabia, which is ultimately going to be the basis for the Islamic faith. Muhammad stood up and said, I'm a direct descendant of Ishmael. I'm one of the tribal leaders. And then he went into a cave one day. In the cave, you know what happened? The angel Gabriel, according to Muhammad, the angel Gabriel showed up and gave him the Quran, which is their holy book. They have a little saying down in Louisiana that I like to use from Cajun country. Where's our brother, Brother Joseph? You understand Cajun, or you should, because that's kind of a playoff of Creole. But here's the saying. I guarantee that that was not the angel Gabriel that gave him the Quran, the supposed holy book of Islam. It was an evil spirit, not the spirit of God. And he got that, that text, the holy book, the Quran. You know what it calls for? It calls for Islamic Jihad. You know what that is? Holy war. Every non-Muslim is to be beheaded if they won't convert. That's what the Quran, this book, the holy book of the Islamic faith says. May I tell you something? Listen to me, folks. There's no such thing as a moderate Muslim. You say, Brother DeYoung, you're getting pretty dogmatic here. No, no, I'm not. Just take the Quran and read it. No such thing. If you don't abide, by in fact, you know what they do once a year for 30 days? They have what they refer to as a fast 30 days. It's called Ramadan. And for 30 days, you fast from sunup in the morning to sundown at night. That's what they do. I'm giving you a little bit of information. See, it's Ishmael's Islamic invasion. That's the message title and the three parts of it. And so they take this Quran, which calls for holy jihad, holy war, which means that every Muslim has to abide by it. Do you know what they say to a person who claims to be a Muslim is not living by the dictates of the Quran, which they are supposed to honor in Ramadan for a 30-day period of time? They call him a hypocrite. Do you, by the way, we got some of those in the church, I think, too. I'm not sure. But anyway, they call them hypocrites. You know what to do, the Islamic hypocrites? 
They have permission, according to the Quran, the holy book, to kill them, to behead them. And so there's no moderate Muslim. Oh, he may be for a couple of days before they kill him. That's the problem. And I want to tell you something. We better wake up. The church better wake up. There's a guy out in California who's trying to put the two together. He calls it Chrislam. What a stupid statement from the pit of hell. The man's a heretic. Though they're diabolically opposed to each other, Christianity and Islam. There's no way you put them together. We've got to understand that. The body of Christ better had understand what Islam is all about. You know why I'm getting so upset about us condescending to Islam? Because Allah, the God, he's not the God of my Bible. He's not my God. He's not the father of Jesus Christ. Because Allah said he never had a son. Have you ever read 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 4? Anybody who says that Jesus Christ was not the son of God in the living flesh is an antichrist. Now, I'm just quoting the scriptures. You make the decision whether it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's right. So Islam is a antichrist religiosity, a satanic religiosity. Uh, and they say, Allah said, look, uh, I did not only not have a son, but Jesus Christ, not being the son of God, was never crucified, never buried, never resurrected from the dead. He went straight to the seventh heaven. Now, wait a minute. If Christ didn't die, wasn't buried, didn't resurrect from the dead, what are we doing here? What are we, playing a game? He did die. He was buried. He did resurrect. Muslims are wrong. Islam. By the way, Islam is the religiosity. Muslims are the congregants, are the members of the Islamic faith. I don't have time. I could go. I've got a five-hour study on Islam out there. You can spend the time studying that if you'd like to. I'll tell you about it in a moment. I wanted you to know something. Ishmael didn't father the Arab world. He fathered one nation, Arabia, which is what we know as Saudi Arabia today. And that is the headquarters for the Islamic faith, Mecca and Medina. Mecca and Medina. And that's where the headquarters for the Islamic faith is going to come together and put together a force to try to wipe out the Jewish state of Israel. That's the invasion, Ishmael's Islamic invasion. Go to chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38. Let me just help you to understand the end time scenario that two prophets and a psalmist give us. Psalm 83, Ezekiel chapter 38, Daniel chapter 11, give us the play, the playbook for what's going to happen with this invasion. And this is part of the prophetic truth that Paul and Peter studied. They studied the prophets. Peter exhorts us, let us receive a pure mind from our remembrance of what the prophets had to say. We need to understand where we are in God's time so we can do what God's called us to do. Here in Ezekiel chapter 38, it gives us a partial list of some of the nations that are going to align themselves against the Jewish state of Israel. Look here in verse 2. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Look at verse 6. Gomer and all of his bands in the house of Tagarma of the north quarters. Look at verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now I'm using a King James. You may have a different terminology. Your Ethiopia that I just mentioned may be Cush. The Libya I just mentioned may be 
put, but these are the Arabic, I'm sorry, the Hebrew names for these nations. Do you know there's a hermeneutical principle as it relates to biblical geography? Who was the author writing about when he wrote the book? In other words, Ezekiel wrote the book 2,500 years ago. So who was Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma? Who was Persia? Who was Cush or Ethiopia? Who was Put or Libya? Who were these people that he's talking about? Keep your finger here and go back with me to Genesis chapter 10. Do you remember when I gave you the first 2,000 years of human history? I came to Genesis chapter 10. I introduced it as a genealogy. Remember Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. Genesis 9 is Noah after the flood. Genesis 9, 1, God tells Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 10 is the beginning of obedience by the three sons of Noah to do exactly what the Lord told them to do. Look here in chapter 10 and verse 1. Now these are the generations of sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Now notice verse 2. And the sons of Jephthah, Gomer, Magog, skip a couple, Tubal, Meshach, go to the last one in verse 3, Tagarma. Wow, we just heard about those boys. They're grandsons of Noah, sons of Jephthah. Look at verse 5. Here's what they were to do. Verse 5, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Do you know when nations came into existence? 4,500 years ago after the flood. They were being obedient to what the Lord said to do, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. What we need then to do is determine who these peoples are and where they went. Well, I'm not that kind of a scholar, so I read books. I can read, you can read, we can all do research. If everything else fails, Google it, and you'll find out what Google has to say about it. But I can give you this much information right now, and you can check me out to see if I'm correct. Do you know who Magog went to live, where he went? He went north of the Caspian and Black Sea. Do you know what that piece of real estate is today? It's called Russia. Russia. Wow. Oh, by the way, you know what else it included? The Ukraine. Have you heard about Russia and the Ukraine? Man, how about that? Do you know that Ukraine was the fatherland? The king of the Ukraine had a son, a crown prince, the heir apparent. He sent him over to St. Petersburg. There he established the motherland of Russia, the Ukraine. Now you maybe get an understanding of why the Ukraine is in focus as it relates to Russia and the European Union. You see this, a map of the Ukraine, all right? Over on this side would be the western border. On this side would be the eastern border. You see that black border down at the bottom? That would be the seacoast cities of the Black Sea of the Ukraine. It's 850 miles across from one side, the western side, to the eastern side. Do you know what Vladimir Putin did? And by the way, let's say that there was a peninsula that jetted out into the Black Sea from the Ukraine. That Black Sea uh, uh, peninsula is called Crimea. Do you know what Vladimir Putin did? He put on a fantastic Olympics in the summer of 2014. After the big finals 
celebration was over, all the fireworks and everything. He got up the next morning, he called his military aides and he said, fellas, I wanna take over Crimea. Now why did he need Crimea? Because he needed a warm water port. Warm water port, why? Because north in Russia, it's frozen over. The Black Sea, they have a border on the Black Sea with Russia, and so they needed this warm water port, and he thought Crimea would make it great. Do you understand something about Vladimir Putin? I don't know what you know about Vladimir Putin, but he's probably one of the smartest men in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm serious, I'm not making fun. He's, he's, and I know he's one of the richest men, if not the richest man. You know how much Vladimir Putin is worth? 140 billion, that's a B billion dollars. That makes old Bill Gates of Microsoft look like a piker. You say, well, where'd you get that from? I told you a moment ago. I Googled it. <laughs> and I did Google it because I knew you were going to go check me out. So I Googled it. CNN interviewed his biography, Vladimir Putin's biographer, and he said he's probably worth about 170 billion. That's CNN. All right, he's a very wealthy man. He paid for the Olympics and then with that PR move to the world, he takes over Crimea. Do you hear anybody get upset about them taking over Crimea? Wasn't a shot fired? Uh, President Obama never said a word. Ah, they might have given a little bit of lip service, but they didn't do anything. He's got Crimea. You know what he's doing right now? They're trying to take all of that land on the Black Sea coastal cities for a land bridge. Because you see, Russia's naval commercial operation and naval military operation will not work unless he has a warm water port. So he takes it over. But wait a minute. Mr. Smart Man didn't do his homework. You want to know something about the Black Sea? It's landlocked. You can't make your way out of the Black Sea to the waterways of the world. There's only one way to get out of the Black Sea. You know what it is? The Bosrus. It comes in at the top of Turkey, goes down through Turkey, comes into the area of the Mediterranean, and you can get to all the waterways of the world. Turkey? Oh, wait a minute. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. That's modern day Turkey. How do I know? Well, look at any geographical, historic, biblical text. You will see, uh, your pastor graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. They have a, a commentary. Go to that commentary. Uh, what is it called? Bible Knowledge Commentary. And you can go there and they got a map of the Middle East. And what we know as Turkey today in biblical times, in the time of Asia Minor, it was divided into four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. Judy and I were just there. I picked up a map and it's still divided that way. Do you understand what the Lord was doing, setting up this whole situation so an alignment of nations could come against the Jewish people? Yeah, that's what happened. So now that uh, the naval operation of Vladimir Putin and Russia can come down through the Bosrus, when we were there, Judy and I stayed in a hotel on the Bosphorus. I was doing some television production there, talk about it on Sunday morning, and I saw a Russian submarine making its way through the Bosphorus. That's how 
God was setting up the alignment of nations. Before we leave chapter 10, let me just show you something else. I told you that Ishmael didn't father the Arab world. Let me prove it. Go here to verse 6. And the sons of Ham, now notice Cush. Now that's Hebrew. You know what it is? Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan. Oh, look at Mizoram. You know who that is? Egypt. Put. That's modern day Libya. Look here in verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod. And he became a mighty one on the earth. Look here in verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Look at the last part of verse 10. In the land of Shinar. You know where that is? That's modern day Iraq. Do you understand what I just said? Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Egypt, Libya, and Iraq. Those are all Arab nations. And you want to know something? Abraham is not even born for 292 years later in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. These are Arab nations on the earth at the time when nations were told to be by God to be brought into existence. Abraham, 292 years away. He couldn't have fathered the Arab world. His son Ishmael could not have fathered the Arab world. Go chapter 38 again. Chapter 38, the book of Ezekiel. I'm trying to finish up. It's now quarter till nine. I'm going to quit as soon as I finish, so just relax. No, I'm going to quit as soon as I can, so just sit there. But I got to finish this. I'm halfway through the sermon. I can't wait. You're not coming back tomorrow night. What am I going to do? And in fact, if you get mad for me going too long tonight, just don't come back tomorrow night. I don't care. All right. Chapter <laughs> I love to say that when you can't come. Uh, chapter 38, we see the list of nations. And if you go over to Psalm 83, we won't go there because of the time. Psalm 83 in verse 6 talks about the Ishmaelites. Now, where did Ishmael go? Saudi Arabia. So that's talking about Saudi Arabia who will be in the alignment of nations. Verse 7 in Psalm 83 talks about Tyre. Tyre and Sidon, that's modern day Lebanon. Go to Daniel chapter 11. Keep your finger, we're coming back to Ezekiel 38 just for a moment, but go to Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel chapter 11, we are going to see that indeed the Lord has a plan for how this is all going to work out. Look at verse 40. And at the time of the end, now, is that difficult to understand, the time of the end? I mean, that's pretty simple. It's used three times there in chapter 11. It's used before verse 40, and it's used also in chapter 12. Remember I used this microphone stand to represent the next event on God's calendar of activities, the rapture of the church. Jesus shouts, Archangel shouts, we're out of here to be with him. And then there is a seven-year period of time, and the pulpit represents the return of Christ back to the earth, Okay. This is the end time scenario. The next event, the rapture hadn't happened. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before it happens. And so it happens. I'm going to show you at the time of the end what's going to take place, what this alignment of nations is going to be like. Look what it says in verse 40. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall push at him and the king of the north shall come against him. Three characters there. King of the north, king of the south, and him. He, his, and him, that pronoun or those pronouns are used 17 times in this passage from 40 to 45. King of the North, early on in chapter 11, verse 5, is described and geographically located. The King of the South is described. Remember after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, the East and the West. They were nebulous entity. It was the North and the South, the major players. And the King of the North had a coalition with the King of the South. In fact, the King of the South offered his daughter in marriage to the king of the north to form this coalition. You can study that. 
Now, you know who the king of the south was? Modern day Egypt. You know who the king of the north was? Geographically, Syria. Do you understand Syria? Going into their sixth year of a civil war, Syria, over 300,000 Syrians killed in the civil war. You know where his soldiers are? Bashar Assad, the Golden Heights on the Syrian side. The Golden Heights. Because Bashar Assad said, I'm going to take back the Golden Heights. You remember they were lost to Israel. 67 war, six-day war in 67. You know what he said the other day? I'll take the Golden Heights out of Israel back. I'll do it diplomatically or I'll do it militarily. His soldiers are massed there at the northern border of Israel. Do you know what? I was talking to somebody today. They were telling me about the artillery fire that they heard over when they were in the Golan Heights on the northern side and Syrian side. You know who else that was? Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, Hezbollah, these terrorist organizations massed at Syria's northern border. They're getting ready to come in. Bashar Assad is between a rock and a hard place. The leaders of the world trying to shut him down. You know what he said the other day? You tried to defeat me, and if you, in fact, de destroy Damascus, I'm still going to win. Do you understand that statement? What a prophetic statement. Isaiah 17 says Damascus will be destroyed. We're talking about this time, at the time of the end, after the rapture of the church. And who's the him here? Well, that's the Antichrist. How does the seven-year period start? When the Antichrist puts together a peace agreement. Yeah, that starts the clock ticking. Daniel 9, 27. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant of peace treaty with many of the Jewish people and their neighbors for one week, seven-year period of time. That starts the clock ticking. And you know who the first nation to move into Israel is going to be? Syria. Syria. The Antichrist. He sets up this peace agreement. He goes over to Rome, Revelation 17. He puts up a false church. He hears that something's happening in Israel. He confirmed a peace treaty. He made an agreement with the Jewish people. Now they're under attack, so what does he do? He rushes back into the land. Look here in verse 41. And he shall enter also into the glorious land. That's the holy land. And he goes after all the nations around except Ammon and Moab and Edom. You know who that is? Jordan. You know why? Petra. He doesn't touch Petra. He wipes out. Oh, notice down here, he goes out and takes out Egypt. And then he hears the Libyans, verse 43, and the Ethiopians at his heels. They're coming after him. And then he hears murmurings out of the east and out of the north. Well, out of the east, that's Iran. Out of the north, that's Russia. Hmm. And Libya? Well, Libya is out to the west. Ethiopia? Oh, oh, that's to the south. All surrounding Israel. Because all direction in the Bible is from Israel. Ezekiel 5, 5, I put Jerusalem in the center of the earth. All the nations around her. They're coming. I won't take the time to go back to Ezekiel 38, but you know what it says in verse 8? When the Jews have come into the land and are dwelling safely. Verse 11 says, when the Jewish people are no longer living in walled cities, unwalled villages, 
That's a military terminology. That means when Israel has laid down their weapons. You see, when Ezekiel wrote the book, he didn't know F-16s, marked the tanks, the most sophisticated tank in the world, Apache helicopters. All he knew is they put a wall around the city. And so Ezekiel the prophet says, when they're living in unwalled villages, when do they attack? When the Antichrist puts that treaty together. And within the first six months of the tribulation, the Islamic world is wiped out. Chapter 38, verses 18 to 39, 6 says they're wiped out. Why? Well, what's the Antichrist doing when he comes back to the Holy Land? He's putting together a false religion in Rome, Italy. And Islam doesn't cooperate with any religion. They're exclusive, an exclusive religiosity. You're a Muslim or you're a dead person. Your choice. Here's where we are. Right here. At this time. What did Peter say? We have a more sure word of prophecy. What do we see happening in this world? The Islamic world aligning against the Jewish state. Who's in Syria tonight? Russia? Iran? And you know who's getting ready? Saudi Arabia. Did you hear about their military exercise called Northern Thunder, 350,000 soldiers from 20 Islamic nations of the world. They just finished their military exercises. They're ready to go into Syria because Iran is there and Saudi Arabia wants to destroy Iran and Syria. That'll put 350,000 soldiers at Israel's northern border. And Syria makes the first move. That's where we are tonight. Like never before in history. Because we have a more sure word of prophecy, we can know it's absolute. It's going to happen. Do you understand the urgency of the moment? Peter and Paul did. They went out to win the world of Christ. What should our responsibility? Either go or send those who can go. Father, thank you for this awesome book. And it's an amazing, articulate, accurate, authoritative book. It's a book that helps us to understand the times in which we're living. It helps us to recognize with a more sure word of prophecy exactly what the Lord wants to convey to us. And the urgency of the moment should be very evident to those of us who've studied these passages of prophetic truth. Therefore, we need to get in the action. The only reason that Jesus has not come back, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the faith. And 2 Peter 3.12 says, we can hasten the coming by winning people to Christ. As pastor concludes our meeting tonight, may that urgency of the moment 
be recognized by each of us and we move ahead to do what you've commanded us to do. My precious name.